Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith, and welcome to this fourth uh, in a series of four podcasts that is aimed to respond to, comment on, and respond to an excellent conversation that took place in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group between September 12th and the 18th. All of the comments have been used and the names have been used with permission. This fourth and final podcast in the series focuses on Amy's comments. I would like to offer a special thanks to Amy in this regard because there were a number of responses to her comments that diverged in viewpoint from what she was expressing. And I really appreciated, Amy, that you continued with the conversation and explained yourself further. That was really productive and helpful. Let me reread my question to Amy and then her reply to that question. Her reply is the comment that I want to focus on. Greg wrote, Amy, You mentioned that in order for you to attend a church, you needed to A, quote, hear the word of God preached, and B, quote, sense the Holy Spirit's movement among its people, end quote. How do you recognize these things? What do they mean? Amy wrote in response to my questions. Well, as for A, I look for humble expositional preaching, all verses in context, all difficult passages interpreted through the lens of the clear passages. The whole Bible centered on Christ. Not shying away from difficult questions, albeit not necessarily addressing those during the worship service. As for B, I look for evidence of folks trying to model the fruits of the Spirit, a lot of opportunities for and participation by members in small group studies and other means of spiritual growth, and definitely showing love and service to the surrounding community and the world. I would say that the qualities noted in my answer to B could be found in many faith communities. So the more important criteria would be to evaluate qualities in A. Although I might argue that if A is true of a given church, then B would most likely be evident as well. I want to start by emphasizing how well I think Amy has summarized what I would consider to be a very typical evangelical perspective when it comes to recognizing and or defining both preaching the Word of God, and sensing the Holy Spirit's movement. This is helpful. My response begins by highlighting the orientations that I believe this typical summary is based or relies upon, orientations that are abundant in evangelical Christianity toward Christian notions, and noting the orientations that seem to be mostly absent from the typical evangelical perspective. In other words, What I almost always note about evangelical perspectives on these matters is a great deal of faith and trust, and very little skepticism and suspicion. Literally, most evangelicals would accept Amy's summary without hesitation. They trust the ideas she's offered and have faith that this perspective is correct in both cases. In order best to engage with Amy's comments, I want to even the scales in this regard by decreasing trust and faith and increasing suspicion and skepticism. Now, I'm not doing this as an abstract exercise or based on some strange notion of fairness between these orientations. Uh, Rather, as I've noted several times with regard to the integration project, I want to do so because faith and trust are not 
what we would call biblical principles. This means that neither one of them stands alone. But instead, each, in fact, represents one pole of a complementary opposition, or what I've called a mutually informing tension. So each represents one pole of a complementary opposition, or another way of saying it, a mutually informing tension. In other words, because faith and trust are each individual parts of larger structures, structures where both components are necessary to human existence, but are opposites to each other, because of this, any consideration of faith or trust must necessarily include considerations of their opposite poles. Further, I would argue that giving each pole due and equal consideration is especially important because this allows for the most balanced perspective possible and so helps us to see and understand better, like when the lenses of a telescope are properly aligned. The reverse, however, is also the case. When we emphasize one pole in such a tension over the other, we end up seeing and understanding worse. The lens is misfocused which often results in a skewed perspective. And I believe that's exactly what the case here. So let me explain. Um, Allow me to be skeptical then for a moment. So first, I'm skeptical, and by that I mean I doubt, or I find it rather questionable, or simply I do not believe, that most Christians without exegetical training, and likely without a commentary in hand, in the pew, would know if a verse is being taken in context or not. Second, whenever preaching references actual biblical content, I'm skeptical that quote-unquote expositional teaching indicates anything about the quality of the preaching. In other words, so long as a sermon references biblical content, expositional teaching means the same thing as simply preaching. Instead, I think that this phrase, expositional teaching, is actually in-house jargon that indicates much much more about the identity of the speaker, such as, "I'm I'm an evangelical, than about the quality of the teaching. So a better way, in my view, would simply be to express what one thinks represents high quality preaching. So for me, that would be something like skilled and practical biblical exegesis integrated with skilled and practiced personal and cultural exegesis, and where appropriate, complemented by relevant experiential and or scientific insights. That's what I think constitutes, in other words, high-quality preaching. I think that's much clearer than um, talking using a phrase like um, expositional teaching. And I'm going to come back to that a bit later in the podcast. Third, I doubt that interpreting difficult passages with clear passages is either obvious or very helpful. Specifically, what is difficult and what is clear are themselves matters of interpretation and evaluation. For example, a passage may be clear, but not overly useful, such as, Jesus wept. I'm not sure which verse it is, but that's an actual entire verse, Jesus wept. A passage may appear to be clear to one reader and not to another. So who gets to choose, and on what basis, in terms of what's clear, and what's not clear, what's difficult, and what's easy? Instead, I would focus on ensuring that good hermeneutical principles are used by the preacher, such as the difference between words indicating and sentences meaning, the necessity of understanding context in its literary, 
historical, linguistic, and cultural forms. The reality that good textual interpretation requires good self-interpretation, and vice versa, etc. I would also hope for these good hermeneutical principles to be communicated to the audience so that they can effectively evaluate how well the preacher uses and adheres to them. The fourth thing that I'm skeptical about is really I don't believe that the whole Bible is actually centered on Christ. In fact, in my experience, it's just such a belief that allows many evangelicals to misinterpret much of the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. When asked what the blood in Isaiah 115 referred to, a prominent elder in a church I was attending said that it was, quote, the blood of Jesus. Yet every commentator and scholar on the planet disagrees with this, that I've ever read, heard of. The blood in question is that of the innocent victims that are, quote, on the hands of, if you like to say it that way, the Jewish religious leaders and the elite due to their disobedience to God. So we have to be very careful about this idea that, that Christ is everywhere, everything. Fifth, I doubt that faith communities, which I understand really to mean Christian communities, are always the best at either understanding the Bible or embodying its teaching. For example, is an unskilled Christian reader or a skilled atheist exegete more likely to interpret the Bible better? The Christians that I know, many, most, almost all, would unanimously choose the unskilled Christian preacher because she or he has the Holy Spirit. Yet in actual practice and actually asking some of these unskilled readers to interpret passages and to uh, interpret their Bibles, I have seen that these unskilled readers offer truly awful readings of the Bible, whereas I've more often seen Christians and non-Christian experts offer interpretations that actually agree with each other and oppose those of, of the unskilled Christians. So those were five points that arose for me when I take a skeptical view of the typical evangelical response on these these notions of uh, uh, good preaching, let's say, uh, exegetical preaching or expositional preaching, and the manifestation or presence of the Holy Spirit. Allow me next to be suspicious of that same response for a moment. First, I'm suspicious, and by that I mean I'm wary of false orientations and hidden motivations when it comes to how Christians view humility. Specifically, evangelical culture tends to value certain virtues, such as humility, more than others, such as confidence. Yet in my experience, it is just as easy to hide unvirtuous motivations behind a veneer of humility as it is to misinterpret a confident person as being proud. More so, humility is not, again, we're coming back to this idea, it's not a biblical principle, but instead, confidence and humility are two poles, again, within a productive opposition or a necessary tension. So both are equally valuable. The point, then, is that false humility, as far as I can see, is no worse than pride. But because it's harder to detect, most Christians tend to favor and promote humility rather than confidence in any given situation. Why? Because it's safer. Which really means because it takes less effort, both to claim humility and to prioritize it. And when it comes to teaching the Bible, I don't want someone 
who's humble for humility's sake. I want someone who is duly confident. In other words, someone who has the necessary skills, knowledge, and disposition to do the job well and to be clear, level-headed, and persuasive about what she or he believes and why. Second, I'm suspicious about how Christians evaluate and value displays of, quote, the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, having spent over 20 years with nearly a dozen churches across a variety of denominations, I have yet to encounter a church where the fruits of the Spirit are not claimed and indeed, in many ways, demonstrated. From my perspective, then, the issue is not whether Christians display kindness, gentleness, patience, etc., but to whom they display these virtues, in what context they do so, how they display them, and for what reasons. So when Christians model the fruits of the Spirit, I am optimistic that the behaviors originate from deeply rooted personal commitments, that they do so because they are deeply connected uh, with these values, and they want to embody them. Yet only when such behaviors also occur in challenging contexts, let's say when um, my church beliefs are being threatened, or towards challenging individuals and in diverse forms, so in various situations and in various different ways, do I view them as really counting? In other words, modeling the fruits of the Spirit without, for example, loving one's enemy amounts to doing the right thing but for the wrong reasons. Authentic Christian living, however, requires that we do the right things for the right reasons, that both our dedication to truth and our dedication to love, in the context of loving God, ourselves, others, and stewarding the created order, orients and directs every activity. And this leads to my third point of suspicion, which is about how much Christians value Christian activities. For example, in my experience, small group attendance and participation is awfully simply one more example of performing expected behavior, doing what Christians are quote-unquote supposed to do. So while I might overtly claim such goals as self-discovery and better understanding God, participation is often just one more part in a circuit of, if you like, do the right thing Christianity where participating in enough Christian events and having enough Christian contact is what it takes for me to please God. This isn't my approach, but this is a very typical uh, approach. Yet this approach is about obligation rather than love or truth. So why why do Christians continue in this way? Why do they do this? My hunch is that many, and perhaps most Christians, hope that their relationship with God will amount to much more than this. Yet I suspect, and here I'm going to bring in suspicion, that they lack the motivation that comes for partnering with someone that one loves deeply in order to do what one believes to be most true and the satisfaction that results from becoming one's best self in the process. In other words, I suspect that most Christians either do not have their top priorities straight, by which I mean loving God entirely, loving oneself rightly, and loving others likewise, and or they do not know how or believe it is possible to engage with God, themselves, and others in this way. Now, this is a major point and worthy of a series of podcasts in in its own right. Here, I will simply reiterate 
I am suspicious that Christian activities often substitute for authentic relationship with God, where authentic relationship with God uh, brings about both a motivation to engage in and for one's faith and satisfaction with oneself through this engagement. This practical feedback loop then empowers Christians to be genuinely committed to their faith and owners in partnership of their own lives. Now, fourth, I could mention I have similar suspicions about how Christians view such matters as love and service, but I think we can leave these for now. Essentially, then, the result of applying skepticism and suspicion to the typical evangelical perspective is that what is typically taken as trustworthy can also and legitimately be seen to be problematic. And what seemed to be a good formulation to believe can also and legitimately be seen as a formulation that is questionable. The point is not that good preaching and right living are not important for Christians, but that rather that Christians typically want to believe that they can define and discern such things as the Holy Spirit's presence and the Word of God really being preached with a degree of clarity and certainty that they simply do not have. I don't believe any human being has this degree of certainty. Now, on the one hand, this point about certainty echoes some of Anna's comments that I raised in episode 153, where Anna notes that it was on account of their attachments to what she called their, quote, certainties, and that's regarding Christian belief and faith, that she was ultimately ostracized from her Christian community by fellow Christians. On the other hand, when Christians claim certainty, they can only do so by ignoring the very things that the Bible is very big on emphasizing about human nature, our finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. I also mentioned these uh, three points in the first podcast in this four-part series, which is again episode number 153, and it's probably worth re-raising those points here. So in episode 153, I explained the following about finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. One very strong reason I see for believing that the biblical text is worth examining more closely is the insight that the Bible offers about what it means to be human, about who and what human beings are. Particularly, the biblical authors make the strong claim that humans and God are related but also very different. And the chief differences concern three components, finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. Where finitude means having a limited perspective, or fallitude, fallibility, pardon me, means the potential to be mistaken, and fallenness means the propensity to be self-deceiving. The implication of finitude, fallibility, and fallenness being innately human characteristics is that humans are, by nature, beings who function best when they are in what we may call relationships of dependent independence. In other words, I function best when I am able to partner with others who, on the one hand, offer resources to assist with my inbuilt limitations, so my finitude, fallibility, and fallenness, and on the other hand, I depend upon these others to the degree that they are aligned with my chief goals and needs. Now, I would express my own chief need and goal as the following the need to be in relationship with someone who knows me truly and loves me deeply 
and to know and love that one in return. I need to be in a relationship with someone who knows me truly and loves me deeply and to know and love that one in return. That is what I believe to be my chief need, and so it is my chief goal. And this is also what I believe to be the chief need of all human beings. And so the person or being with who, who most fosters that goal and fulfills that need is the one upon whom I wish to be most dependent. Now, two episodes later, just this past episode in number 155, I offered the following about finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. By engaging in a relationship of dependent independence with God, human beings are able best to mitigate the effects of their innate finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. How? Well, the outcome of such a human-divine relationship, rightly oriented, is that I become fully functioning, or if you like, the best version of myself, with the result that my deficiencies of finitude, fallibility, and fallenness are instead more likely to manifest as situatedness, capability, and integrity. So what I'm saying there is that by becoming fully functioning, by being the best me I am, I'm still finite, fallible, and fallen, and yet within the context of that relationship shaping and forming me, those three limitations are much likely to manifest as situatedness, capability, and even integrity. In other words, through being empowered to become my best self and so function most fully in whatever context I find myself, I live as I am best able to live. So what happens when Christians act as if they are not finite, fallible, or fallen. As I mentioned last podcast, we end up overstepping our boundaries. Christians make claims that we cannot support or offer answers that don't actually prove truthfulness, the the truthfulness of our statement, or we end up treating others in ways that we staunchly claim not to. We treat them unlovingly. The result, then, of balancing suspicion and faith, skepticism and belief, is that we claim less but we make claims from a place that is more grounded in the realities of human nature and that is true to life. And in so doing, we actually achieve more. Here's an example, and I'll be honest. So let me take the two examples that Amy's offered about preaching the Word of God and sensing the movement of the Holy Spirit. Regarding the first example, I do not know what preaching the Word of God means. If it means anything more than someone preaching a sermon and referencing the Bible. Full stop. Now here I'm going to, re- I'm revisiting what I, the comment I made earlier. So in my view, Christians would be far better served to use general everyday language and avoid jargon when talking about these matters. This not only makes things clearer to outsiders, whom Christians very much want to engage with, but also has the advantage of avoiding the possibility that in words or catchphrases act on their own as guarantees for legitimacy. In other words, my worry is that despite the remarkably broad meaning that we can attribute to preaching the Word of God, when one Christian says this to another Christian, it is most often taken to mean, it's okay, my church is safe, we think and believe like you do, you can feel comfortable here. And this, without ever having defined what safe means, let alone how or what a person or group thinks and believes. 
In other words, catchphrases and Christian jargon are far less about communicating content than about demonstrating membership in a certain kind of group and identifying oneself to other members of that group. So because I am much more interested in being clear and inclusive to outsiders, and because I'm aware of the trickiness involved, because I view such concepts, in other words, as evaluating preaching and perceiving the Holy Spirit using both faith and suspicion, both belief and skepticism, because I take a broader, a much broader approach, I actually use very simple brief terms to describe these concepts. So rather than talking about preaching God's word, I just talk about good preaching. And this often prompts the question, what do you mean by good? Such a presentation results in explanation of the matter at hand rather than demonstrating membership. And worse, doing so as if the topic were clear and uncomplicated, which I hope that I've shown that it certainly is not. Concerning the second example, I will also admit, in all honesty, I have no sense of what constitutes the movement of the Holy Spirit. If it is anything more than some way in which a person or people whose reliance upon God empowers them relative to their finitude, fallibility, and or fallenness. In cases such as this, I believe that Christians would be well served by examining more closely the nuances and complexities of such matters as perceiving the Holy Spirit. For example, it's one thing to say that I value this or that type of preaching and explain why. It is an entirely different matter to claim that the Holy Spirit is present or moving here or among this group, but not over there with those folks. Such an interpretation is remarkably difficult to make and is sufficiently complex to merit another entire podcast, but I am going to venture a few points to make my meaning clear. So for nearly two years, I facilitated and taught an adult class at a church. As I began to push back against a number of the favored Bible reading strategies, strategies that conveniently actually would mean that those who held them didn't really have anything to learn from interpretive specialists, such as myself, things came to a head. One of the questions that I was going to ask at that point was, if what I have been saying about how to interpret the Bible well and the prevalence of self-deceit actually have merit, if, if there's some truth to them, and if your method of Bible reading runs quite contrary to what I have been presenting, how would you know that the Holy Spirit isn't trying to get you to reconsider your reading method through my teaching in this discussion right now? The point is not about the value of someone's teaching, but that discerning the presence of the Holy Spirit amounts to understanding what is best and most valuable in a given context, both for God, and I would say, what best contributes to realizing God's kingdom, which is God's primary goal, and for oneself, which is what best contributes to becoming fully functioning and fully one's best self. The Holy Spirit, in other words, will always seek to present and promote options leading in these directions. The issue, however, is that human beings are prone to self-deceit, and as such, humans have a tendency to perceive what is best and most valuable as that which furthers our ability to meet our needs in a fully independent manner, without due dependence upon God. 
So, ironically, when most Christians claim to know what represents the Holy Spirit's presence or movement, they do so typically in complete ignorance of the fact that this is precisely a subject about which we are very prone to deceiving ourselves, and so quite likely to get it wrong. So instead of talking about sensing the Holy Spirit's movement, I talk about what's best and most valuable in a given context, both for God and for humans. And so it should be clear how making claims about the Holy Spirit's actions require not only knowledge of events or situations, but also some clear and robust understandings of those things that are most valuable, both for God and for humans. And that being, again, I would say, for God, the realization of God's kingdom, and for humans, becoming fully functional as one's, if you like, best self. I want to conclude by replying to one of Amy's earlier comments. Here is that comment. Amy wrote, The church Christians should try to engage with unbelievers respectfully, where they are, of course, and acknowledge the validity of their experiences and their intelligence. But at the end of the day, Christ slash Christianity makes a truth claim that must be addressed. It cannot forever be sidestepped. And although a person will become the best version of themselves once they are in right relationship with God, That's because right relationship with God is what we were designed for. There are two things I would like to point out. On the one hand, aside from that famous saying about death and taxes, I think that anything can be sidestepped forever. Now, I think that the word choice here is very helpful as it points out once again uh, a belief that is very common among evangelicals, that non-Christians avoid Christianity. The implication at the core of this notion is that when you really get down to it, non-Christians somehow recognize at least something of the truthfulness of Christianity or of its relevance to or for them. In other words, the only thing that I can sidestep is something that is coming right at me or near enough. Yet the figurative implication of something coming, if you will, right at me is that from my perspective, it's directed to me. It's intended for me, and therefore, it's somehow relevant to me. And it is this very point that indicates a subtle but powerful misconception by Christians about non-Christians. And this is crucial for Christians to understand. From every non-Christian that I know, or have engaged with, or have read, or heard from, from their perspective, Christianity is not a challenge or something to be considered. It is an antiquated ridiculous, and dead belief set that has no value for them. So they're not sidestepping it, because that would imply that they perceive Christianity as being in some way relevant. In fact, I don't even think they're ignoring it, because this would imply that it held some form of prominence or was in some way noteworthy. They are, as far as I've seen, simply carrying on their lives when they do encounter Christianity as a message that is somehow pointed at them. From what I have seen, they shake their heads and they walk on. The final part of Amy's comment is also helpful in that it demonstrates a unidirectional perspective or what I might call a biblical bias that nearly all Christians are taught to hold. Uh, Amy's comment was this, And although a person will become the best version of themselves once they are in right relationship with God, that's because right relationship with God is what we were designed for. The 
point I am making is that the belief that, quote, right relationship with God is what we were designed for, end quote, is a truth claim. Yet its truth value comes from the experience of achieving full or better functioning in real life by being in right relationship with God. The issue then is that this type of claim is in fact a concrete example of how non-Christians are not actually sidestepping the truth of Christianity so much as being faced with one-sided and therefore nonsensical perspectives. To say it another way, to state that right relationship with God is what humans are designed for is to substitute a theological and so therefore a theoretical conclusion for what logically should be an existential and therefore a practical example. We're offering conclusions or explanations in the form of conclusions rather than offering examples. In other words, offering an explanation, and particularly a theological explanation, misses the point. What is the point? The point is that both for non-Christians and for Christians, the only valid expression of the Christian faith is one that relates to, impacts upon, and is impacted by real life. If there's no relationship between faith and life, and if that relationship is not robust, A, I've got no way to figure out whether Christianity is true or not, but B, it's not meaningful, because I live in in the real world. Instead, then, of offering a conclusion to non-Christians or an explanation that has the the effect of a conclusion, um, and that that could be summed up as, you know, the Bible is true and God is God is real. Uh, that's 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 sort of the uh, the implication of offering that that explanation, and that implies then that the important part is understanding the right things or getting the right truth. And this going back to Anna's comments, Christians instead need to offer truthful evidence that their claims are relevant and impactful for human existence. Doing so requires Christians first to show how and how much the truths in the world around them inform their beliefs and how they read the Bible, such that by being broadly informed, so say by sound psychology, sociology, philosophy, etc., Christians actually do demonstrate living as their best selves and offer compelling embodied examples of full functioning. Only then, I believe, will they earn the right to tell others, to tell non-Christians how their beliefs and their Bible reading inform their ability to live better in the world. Notably, how the experience of being in right relationship with God results in better living. And what would the result be? Well, rather than prioritizing getting the right truth, Christians will have the necessary perspective and embodied understanding to allow them to relate to non-Christians as real people in a manner that is more human and more humane. Or to state it differently, this will allow Christians to balance truth and love in a vibrant and compelling tension. To balance truth and love in a vibrant and compelling tension. So as I've often argued in past podcasts, Christians need to understand the Bible and the Christ- and Christian belief in light of the world and its various information sources, and to understand the world and its various information sources 
in light of the Bible and their beliefs. There needs to be a reciprocity. I've also expressed this as uh, the relationship, if you like, stated in a theological way between creation and salvation. More on that later. But only through having this type of reciprocity is the claim that right relationship with God is what humans are designed for believable and therefore persuasive. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.